All right, guys, we have the opportunity to dive back into God's word this morning, and we're in the book of Galatians. And we've gotten to this point where we've been talking about how we've been justified by faith and we've been filled with the spirit. And that's all been leading us to the place where we're gonna be talking about adoption this morning. And adoption is a subject that's near and dear to my heart because our oldest two kids are adopted from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Luke and Emma. And my wife and I have been tremendously blessed to have them as part of our family and have also learned a lot about the way that adoption affects someone's life by being their parents. And one of the effects that adoption often has in a child's life who's adopted from a hard place is that it can produce sort of an attachment disorder in that child's heart. And here's what an attachment disorder is. That child has been adopted, they're secure, they're in a family, they're gonna get the next meal, they have loving parents who care for them, who are gonna protect them and provide for them. And although that is true, they also continue to have an orphan's heart. So they continue to believe falsely, that they will not be taken care of, even though all the truths of their life now point in the opposite direction. And here's what I think is true. I think what's true is that many of us have a spiritual attachment disorder. Although we see in God's word that it's true that we have been adopted into God's family, that he loves us and will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, we continue to believe falsely that we must go out and provide for ourselves. And so the book of Galatians is written to Christians who have forgotten. They're like us. They've forgotten that they have been adopted. And so although they are beloved children, they're living like orphans. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to remind ourselves about our adoption process. And we are going to see that we are free to obey God because we are God's adopted kids. We're his kids. So let's look at how he has brought us into his family. The first step in the adoption process is that we have been guarded by the law. Okay, let's read again verses 19 through 24. A short part of a long section. So it says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so 18 of the 22 verses that we're looking at from chapters three and four this morning have to do with this one question. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? 
See, the false teachers had come into Galatia and they would say, yeah, God gave this promise to Abraham, but then he gave the law. And so the, the relationship that you had with God used to be based on a promise if you lived in Abraham's day, but when it transitioned to Moses' day, the relationship with God became based on the law. You have to obey God in order for him to love you instead of God loves you and therefore you must obey him. And so people were thinking, wait, doesn't the law contradict God's promise? And Paul answers with an emphatic no. And he gives three basic reasons for that in the text. The first one is that he argues that the promise came first. Okay, so when we read the Bible, what we tend to do is we tend to lump all of the Old Testament characters into one generation. So we think of Abraham, Moses, and David all being bros sitting around a bonfire hanging out together. But the truth is, there was a lot of distance between when they lived. In fact, there were 430 years between Abraham and Moses. So what happened was God came to Abraham, and he gave him this promise. He said, look at the stars. I'm gonna make your descendants like the stars in the sky or like the sand on the seashore. And through your offspring, singular Jesus, I'm gonna bless the whole world. And it was very obvious if you lived during that time that in order to have a relationship with God, you simply believed his promise because there actually was no such thing as the law. And what Paul's saying is that's very purposeful. The law came 430 years later to establish that the only way to have relationship with God is by promise, not by obeying the commandments. So the promise came first. The second argument that Paul makes is that the promise came directly So the way that the promise was communicated to Abraham was God just showed up to him. He spoke directly to him. He looked at him face to face and he said, I promise you that this is what I'm going to do. With the law, it's not so. The law was put in place through an intermediary. The intermediary's name was Moses. And so the way that the law was communicated to the people was actually through Moses. It was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. He came off Mount Sinai and his face was glowing with the glory of God. And he had to put a veil over his face. So the law was given through a messenger. The promise was given directly by God. And Paul says that's because the promise is more foundational and more important than the law. God placed such importance on the promise that he had to give it directly. He placed less importance on the law, and so he gave it through a messenger. And the third reason that the promise is more important than the law is because the promise gives life. The promise gives life. The law brings death. The law is like a mirror that exposes our flaws. The promise is so far-reaching and so beautiful and so beyond us 
that it actually imparts life to us. It is if God is saying, dream with me, look at the stars, just believe me, I'm gonna do something amazing and something important and I'm gonna do it without you. I don't need your help. All you need to do is trust me. So then here's the question. What's the purpose of the law? Should we just disregard the law? Does the law have no purpose in the life of an Old Testament saint or in the life of a Christian? And Paul says, no, don't go that far. The law is not bad. The law is good. And here's why God put the law in place. There's actually two reasons. One is to restrain sin, and the other was to expose sin. So all of us are thankful for the civil laws. The civil laws keep people from doing crazy things. And the main reason that the civil laws keep people from doing crazy things is people are afraid of being punished. That is God's design in giving Israel civil laws and by extension, giving us civil laws. It restrains sin. It allows us to have a just society where things work, although in a broken way, they work in a way that otherwise everything would fall to crap. Okay, the second reason that God gave the law was for spiritual reasons. So there's the civil reasons, there's the spiritual reason. And the spiritual reason is to show us our need for Jesus. The law wasn't meant to give us life. It was to show us that we're dead and that we actually desperately need Jesus. We desperately need a rescuer to come into our life and to save us from this mess that we've got ourselves in by turning our backs on God and trying to be our own God. So the law functions in our lives for our good. It's sort of like the laws that I give to my kids. So one of the laws that we have in our house is that our kids must brush their teeth two times a day. And the reason that that's significant for our kids is because if we didn't make the rule, they wouldn't do it. And the reason it's in place is for their good, right? We're trying to restrain the evil gingivitis from overtaking their mouths and their teeth rotting out of their heads, especially this time of year when we just went trick-or-treating as a family and we got like three-fourths of a large garbage bag full of candy and our kids are eating that. So it's like, you have, you have to brush your teeth. Okay, so that law, it's good. All of us would say, that's a really good idea as a parent to make a rule for your kids to brush their teeth. But that law, although good, is only temporary. I would hope that when our kids get married or they have roommates someday, that their roommates wouldn't have to lay down a similar law. Like, you have to brush your teeth ten, two times a day, bro, right? You gotta do this. Or I hope that they won't have to have like that commandment hanging on their wall above their bedroom. Like, you shall brush your teeth two times a day. Well, why don't they need the law anymore when they get older? Because what used to be needed as external motivation has now become the internal desire of their heart. So the law is good, but it's actually temporary. And it's leading us 
somewhere. It's good, but it cannot save us. It's good insofar as it leads us to the one who can save us, which gets us to the second step in the adoption process, which is we need to be redeemed by Jesus. We can't save ourselves by obedience to God's commands. We need an internal transformation of the heart by Jesus. And here's what Paul says happened. After these 18 verses, we finally get to the word but in verse four, and it says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's what the law does, right? The law guards us primarily through fear. It condemns us. And it gives us an internal sense on the heart that we are guilty before God, that we have violated his commandments. But it's not in order that we would stay there. It's in order that we would see our need for a savior. And his name is Jesus. Jesus was born of a woman. In in other words, God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, became human. He was in Mary's womb. He was born in a feeding trough. And the reason for that is that Jesus was born under the law. In other words, in the same position that we're in, with the law hanging over his head and God commanding him to do everything in the law. But the difference between us and Jesus is that where the law exposes our deadness, it exposed his aliveness. So when he saw the commandments of God, he said, yes, I want to do this. I want to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And I want to love my neighbor as myself. It's my delight to do your will, God. And he didn't see the law as a crushing burden. He saw the law as the pathway to his joy. He performed under the law which that's a great example for us, but that's not the primary reason that he came. He didn't come primarily to set an example for us. He came primarily to be our savior. And so then what we see is the only one who actually kept the law is crushed for us on the cross. What's the meaning of that? When Jesus hung on the cross, he was taking the punishment that your law-breaking deserves. He was paying the penalty for your sin. Redemption is a transactionary word. He was paying what justice required. God's justice is very different than our justice. He says that every sin and disobedience requires a just retribution. In other words, the wages of sin is death. God does not sweep sin under the cosmic rug. He punishes sin every single 
time. And so you have a choice. You can pay the penalty for your own sins forever in hell, or Jesus can pay your penalty for you on the cross. And in thus doing, he pays the price of your redemption. And this is in order that you might receive adoption as a son. In other words, what we're describing here is a transaction that has happened between God the Father and God the Son. It's something that God has done without you, not something he needs your help to do. My understanding of this was deepened in a significant way as I went through the adoption process. Okay, if I showed you all the paperwork that Melissa mainly filled out and I partly filled out, that paperwork would be over a foot thick. It is a ton of paperwork. And what that basically represents is the price that you pay in order to adopt. So there's a significant amount of money. You need to get fingerprints done. You've got to have somebody inspect your house to make sure you have enough bedrooms and all those types of things. You need to buy plane tickets. You need to communicate with people who are in the Democratic Republic of Congo in our case and people who are on on the U.S. side, these different government officials. And what we're doing is you're fulfilling the just requirements of the law in order to bring somebody into your family. But it's in order that they might be brought into your family. So here's how I think a lot of us live as Christians. We live a thank you relationship with Jesus, which is great. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you. We're appreciative of the price that you paid for us. And we should sing about that and we should celebrate that. And we love the cross. But we have to understand that it's in order that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, it's going somewhere. It has a purpose. So I would be very frustrated if my adoptive kids only ever said to me, dad, we just want to thank you for all that paperwork that you did. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to go to the Vikings game with you. And I want to hang out with you in the backyard. And I want to eat delicious food together. And I want to live life together. I want to enjoy our relationship. And they were just like, dad, thank you so much for filling out the paperwork. The paperwork Our justification, what Jesus has done on the cross, is a means to an end. He wants to bring us into this vital, life-giving, life-transforming, father-son relationship. He actually wants to know you. And so the last step in the adoption process is that we get adopted. We're brought into God's family forever, sealed with his spirit. Listen to this. Galatians 4, 6 through 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So here's what one of you needs to hear this morning. Your identity is not a guilty, underperforming, wallowing, barely Christian. You're not a failure. You're not a loser. You're not just a sinner. We're not mopey people who just think about our sin all the time and just kind of not doing well because I broke God's commandments again. Here's, Here's what God is calling us into, to see ourselves as we are, 
We're sons. God's our father. And this is really good news for every person here. Some of you are like, okay, I'm a girl. How can I be a son? And the answer is, this is actually good news because in that Roman culture, if you didn't have a son and you were in the upper class, you would actually adopt a son, maybe a 15-year-old kid into your family because only the sons were heirs. It was a very patriarchal culture. And so what Paul's saying is, no matter if you're black or white, you're rich or poor, you're Asian or Hispanic, no matter what your socioeconomic background is or where you come from or where you've been or what you've done, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a son. You're in. You're all in. You're not a second class or a third class Christian. There's only one kind of Christian. It's to be a son. Guys, this is the solution to all of the problems that our society is trying to solve right now. Everyone's trying to figure out how we can have unity, how we can have agreement, how we can have unity and diversity at the same time. And the answer is come be a part of the church. Place your faith in Jesus. Stop trying to perform for God. Believe in him and we will be one unit and the world will look in on us and be like, how did you guys figure this thing out? And we'll be like, it's the blood of Jesus. That is my total and complete standing with God. We're all sons. And if we're sons, then we're heirs through God. Which means God's intention in making you a son is to give you everything to give you full-hearted relationship with him and to literally give you the world. His heart for you is good. And this is something that I believe is so at the heart of Christianity that we will in this life and then forever be having aha moments about what this actually means. I remember just a few years ago, I was on a retreat and I was leading Salt Company in Iowa City. I was a college pastor at the time. And I'm sitting in the crowd and the speaker was speaking about this reality of our our adoption. And I found myself starting to get just super emotional as he rehearsed these truths. And I often think in pictures, and so I remember having this, this picture just flash into my mind. And it was a picture, kind of a combination of like a vision and um, like a picture that I think was from an old family photo album. But it was just my dad holding me in, in his arms. And just, you know the, those pictures, like just that huge smile and, and that, that delight and, and his eyes are just locked onto mine. He's just smiling. It's like that, that vision of just like, this is what I need. I, I need a dad like this. I, I need a father like this. And it was like the Lord was communicating by his spirit. It was just overwhelming me. And he's just saying, oh, you think your dad loves you. You know that your dad loves you. I have, a, I have a close relationship with my dad. He's like, you know your dad loves you. He's like, I'm your father. You think your dad loves you, just wait to see what I have prepared for you. I am your true 
and your better father. And I love you. And some of you, what you need is you need that reminder. And I can't communicate it through you through my words, but what the the scripture says is, is that God can communicate it to you through his word and by his spirit. And you can, you can sense, even as I'm talking about it right now, like the, the Spirit's stirring in you. And, and what happens is you begin to, to go from this judge-slave relationship with God to this Abba-Father relationship with God. Abba was the ancient equivalent of Dada. It was the first words on a child's lips in relationship to their dad. And what Scripture's saying is, that's what Christianity is all about. You can have that type of intimacy with God, not based on your performance, but based on what God has done. So you don't have to perform for God. You can be like a little child, like drooling and pooping your pants and like just showing up here, like as, as, as you know, your new birth has just happened. There's like smoke on your breath and alcohol on your breath. And we're saying, yeah, come on in. Like this is the place for you. This is the place for you because this is the place for me and we're all broken people desperately in need of a savior and desperately just in need of a dad to help us navigate through this life. And even as I'm talking about this, some of you are just like, man, envisioning God as a father, it actually makes it even more painful because you just have this acute reality in your own soul. Like your dad has failed you. Some of you, your dad did unthinkable things to you, even abused you. And you're just like, man, I, I can't even think of God as a father. And what I'm asking you to do is by faith, just begin that reverse engineering process and to see that your dad, no matter how good or bad of a dad he is, was actually meant to fail you, to point you to the greater father. And here's, here's what scripture says. Those of us who, who have literally been abandoned by our fathers or those of us whose fathers fell so short that we've actually felt sort of orphaned and abandoned our whole life. Here's what scripture would say to us. This is who God is. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Do you see the connection there? Do you know why you rebel? Do you know why you don't want to keep the commandments of God? It's because you've sought to take care of yourself. You've gone on your own. You're like an infant laying there trying to feed itself. And God is saying, I'm your father. I'm the one who can take care of you. Don't run away from me in rebellion. Run toward me. And I'll teach you how to be obedient because obedience is the pathway to your joy. And unless you are on that path, you will live a life of destruction. So here's what I'm asking all of us to do. Something really, really practical. I'm asking you to believe this message, but I'm not asking you to believe this message just in your head or even just in your heart. I'm asking you to believe this message with your life. I'm asking you to bank your life on the fact 
that God is a good father, that he's your dad, that he has what's best in mind for you, and that he loves you. And I'm asking you to take bold steps of faith that require risk and obedience this week. Maybe you need to apologize to somebody. Maybe there's something that you did to somebody. Maybe it was way back in elementary school, but you actually, that, that thing is like impeding your relationship with God. You actually need to call that person. You need to write them a letter. You need to tell them you're sorry. Maybe it's a member of your family, but you need to own up to your rebellion and your sin. Or maybe you're in a sexually immoral relationship. Maybe you're here with that person now. And he's not having saying that, you're like, don't look, don't look at each other. Don't, don't do it, right? And you're feeling super uncomfortable. And I'm telling you, maybe you just need like in the lobby, like we're not gonna do that anymore. We're done. We're moving out. We're not gonna live together anymore. We're not gonna have this sexually immoral relationship because the thing is, maybe you're experiencing like the pleasure of of that sexual relationship, but right afterwards you just sit there and you're like, you experience that orphanedness again because you've run outside of the protective pleasure of God and you've run off on your own and you just, you feel just awful. You know, I don't wanna live in this place anymore. I don't wanna do these things anymore. Maybe you need to take that next step and you need to actually understand that since you've been adopted by God, you're actually part of a family. Like these are your brothers and sisters. This is not just a group to like sit in a row with and talk to once a week. This is like the family that you're a part of and you actually need each other. And you need to jump into a connection group. You actually need to do it. Not just like sit there and be like, oh, that's a really good idea. That's really cool that Salt City's about connection groups. That's awesome. Oh, are you in one? No, I'm not. What? Come on, jump into one. Not because you have to, but because you get to. And God is a father of the fatherless and he's placed us orphans in families, the family of the church to take care of us and nurture us in this walk with Jesus. We all need help in doing that. Or maybe the step for you is baptism. Like the Christian life is supposed to begin with this ridiculous step of faith. Have you, forgot, have you thought about this before? It's like, you believe in Jesus. Okay, here's what we want you to do. We want you to put on this t-shirt And we want you to actually stand up in front of a bunch of people and be like, yeah, I'm messed up, I need Jesus. And then we're gonna dunk you in water. Do you know what the whole point of that? It's supposed to make you look stupid. It is. It's supposed to make you look stupid and it's supposed to make Jesus look awesome because that's what obedience feels like. And then do you know what you do? You feel like the step is stupid and then you come out of the water and you're like, Yes, and you experience in that moment the jubilation of what it's like to actually begin to walk in obedience to Jesus. So you see, God has adopted us into his family to instruct us and to teach us patiently over time that obedience is joy. And the way that he's done that is he's taken away the sting of the law. He's paid the penalty for our sins. We don't have to perform for him to be right with him, but we get to walk in obedience to him because he's our dad and he loves us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're here. You're here with us every week. You paid the penalty for our sin. And and Father, thank you that you love us. By your spirit right now, we're seeing that, that you're just holding us, that you're looking us in the eyes that we're drooling all over the place, that we're messed up, that we are just saying, Abba, Dada. We are so needy. 
we're trying to show everybody else that we, we're good or, or that we've got our life together, or that we can be good religious boys and girls, but in our hearts, we know that's not true. We're desperate for you, God. We, we need a dad. And I just pray that person, man, who's just been rebelling, would the, would the floodgates just break open during this next song? Would they just see the damage that their sin is doing to their own soul and to the people that they say they love? And, and would they be um, brought back into relationship with you to be restored, to believe, and to know you as their father? In Jesus' name, amen.